At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophathites, from Beth Gilgal, and from the area of Geba and Asmaveth. For the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So did I, together with half the officials, as well as the priests Eliakim, Messiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elianai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with their trumpets, and also Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehohanan, Melchizedek, Elam, and Ezer. The choirs sang under the direction of Jezariah. And on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first fruits, and tithes. From the fields around the towns, they were to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites, for Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification, and did also the musicians and gatekeepers, according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the musicians and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portions for the musicians and the gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. They were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre, who lived in Jerusalem, were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise, and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things, so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up even more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates, so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married, uh, married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled their hair. I made, I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like this that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we now hear that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? 
One of the sons of Joida, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. This has been the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Ben, for that. Um, also wanted to get him up on his birthday for those fun names that were read out. <laughs> Just a little challenge, you know. Um, we're super excited. I know many of you know the LaFerla's here, um, but we have Gary here this morning. Um, he doesn't need any introduction. He's been a friend of Vintage for a very long time, um, come on Sundays with us. But um, we are very excited and thankful that he's here to lead us while Ben is away. So let's welcome Gary LaFerla. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Carla. Thank you, church. And Ben, I nominate you church scribe. You did so great on that. You are, that is a hard uh, text to read. Welcome, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. And I'm looking forward to seeing you guys and talk. But the title of this morning's study is World Changers. I'm going to look at these passages in a moment, but I first want to start with a video on the Great Awakening of 1857, which I'm sure you're going to love. So let's take a moment and uh, take our eyes and take a look at the screen. The United States, 1857. Slavery, rebellion, rumors of war. In three years, Americans would turn on each other and make history. But in 1857 New York City, history the kind textbooks don't mention was already happening. The date was September 23rd. A Christian layman named Jeremiah Lamphere held his first ever businessman's prayer meeting in Lower Manhattan. It was not, by all accounts, a rousing success. He'd passed out flyers for weeks. Six men attended. Two weeks later, the stock market crashed. Thousands of families lost all they had and one of the greatest spiritual awakenings the world has ever seen began. Week by week, Jeremiah Lamphere's tiny lunch hour prayer meeting grew larger and larger. By December, his six men had become 10,000 men, and they met not every week, but every day. The New York newspapers took notice, and when word spread to other cities, spontaneous revival broke out across the country. In Cleveland and St. Louis, Thousands of people packed downtown churches and theaters three times each day just to pray. In Chicago, churches had to have waiting lists for people wanting to teach Sunday school. And all across America, pastors were baptizing 20,000 new believers every week. The revival eventually spread around the world. In England, entire towns were converted. Some towns disbanded their police force because of a lack of crime. And so many people came to Christ, churches had to hold services outside just to accommodate the crowds. The world had seen nothing like it, before or since. Global revival. God started it with one man. It changed the course of history. And now, in today's world, people need to know, can history repeat itself? Can it happen again? Yes, it can. 
How many would like that to see that happen? Yeah, you can clap. That's a great thing. We don't know how God can do what he's going to do, but he can do anything that he chooses, and we need to be aligned with him. We have great opportunities that await us in the kingdom of God. After all, Jesus said, greater things than these shall ye do. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. In pursuing Christ's great commission, these verses apply but we often don't exercise our options and take Christ up on his words. Those of us in the church today can sound a little bit like those in the time of Nehemiah, like in Nehemiah 1, where they came to Nehemiah and said, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Later on in the book, we find that as the actual builders were building the walls, they came to Nehemiah and they were panicking and they said, the people began to complain and they said, the workers are getting tired and there is so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. To be sure, the world appears to be dying as we uphold two selfish values while not upholding the values of Christ. In the words of Christian historian Francis Schaeffer, Nations fall based on the two following core values. One, the quest for personal peace at the expense of the peace of others. And two, the quest for personal prosperity at the expense of our own morality. As you look around the nation today, you can see these two core values overtaking our nation, Western civilization, and they're the core values that also ended up being a part of what took down Rome. Therefore, the church needs to know how to live for Christ in these times and to complete his great commission. A great storm comes before a harvest and a great trial before an awakening. So if you're ready to buckle in and go on this ride today through Nehemiah, where we end up on Nehemiah 13, maybe we can prepare our hearts and our minds and our souls to do what God would have us to do. The book of Nehemiah and the man Nehemiah is a perfect study for us. Now we're at the end of the book today and I wanna take a survey of his life to identify four key characteristics of how God uses us to become world changers. And more importantly, if you think about a symphony like uh, Bach or Beethoven, there are movements. And just as there are artistic movements in brilliant symphonies, we also see artistic movements in the lives of the people in the Bible. And so Nehemiah's life tells us that there are four things that we can see. He was a, a passionate disciple. Second, a big godder. Three, a courageous leader. And four, a radical reformer. So let's focus and see where we go and how we can get there at the end of this service. First, a passionate disciple. I'm going to bring up one verse per point. And they said to me, as Nehemiah was in Nehemiah 1, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and I mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah had a huge passion for God. Now, so much of our Christian effort, unfortunately, goes up in smoke because we love our hobbies more than Jesus oftentimes, and because God time for us happens in church, 
but there's a major issue with integrating God into our personal lives, integrating God into our business lives, and to really see the church as a divine gas station where we can fill up and then take God wherever we are. And that's why so much goes up in smoke. To illustrate this, I want to give you the true story of a man in Zimbabwe. Fewer people ever struck a stranger deal than did Gaylord Kambarami the time he tried to sell a New Testament to a man in Zimbabwe. As Gaylord talked with the man, it became apparent that the stranger was not interested in reading the little book. Instead, he was eyeing the size of its pages, um, excuse me, and the texture of the page, paper, thinking it would be perfect for rolling his cigarettes. So he told Gaylord that if he gave him the New Testament, that's how he would use it. True story. Gaylord bargained, at least promised to read each page before you make it. Thinking that he had the better of the deal, the man agreed. Gaylord, the general secretary of the Bible Society in Zimbabwe, gave him the Bible, and the man disappeared until some years later. Gaylord was attending a convention in Zimbabwe, a Christian convention, when the speaker on the platform recognized him and pointed him out to the audience. This man doesn't remember me, he said excitedly as he pointed towards uh, Gaylord, but 15 years ago he tried to sell me a New Testament. When I refused to buy it, he gave it to me even though I told him I would use the pages to roll cigarettes. His only condition was that I read each page before smoking. I smoked Matthew. I smoked Mark. And I smoked Luke. But when I got to John chapter 3, verse 16, I couldn't smoke anymore. My life was changed from that moment, concluded the man. Today, that man is a full-time church evangelist devoting his life to showing others the way of salvation he found in this little book. The centerpiece of God's will for you is found in his word, the Bible. Don't let God's word go up in smoke. Now, the New Testament application to us here, we remember breakfast at the sea with Jesus, right? And so Jesus is there with Peter, who had already denied him three times, right? And then he asked Jesus three times, Peter, do you love me? And each of those times we see the pathos in Peter's life and we see that Peter remembered what had gone on in his life. He remembered failing and yet there is Jesus holding him to him. This, of course, also is very well depicted in Isaiah chapter six when you find that in six, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had his six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And the words went out, holy, 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 for the Lord of hosts. One holy for each person of the Trinity, we like to say. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, because immediately then he has this picture of his sinfulness. And one of the seraphim flies to him, having a live coal in his hand, which he took from the fire, and he touched the lips of Isaiah, right? And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying at that moment, after his sin was purged, after he saw what this great vision was, 
he hears the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah said, here I am, send me. Friends, this is the passion of what God does to get us passionate because it's first we get a vision of the Lord, second we're eternally thankful for the sinfulness that we have in our life forgiven, and then third, we then open our hearts to him and his divine will. Nehemiah was a passionate disciple. Second, Nehemiah was a big godder. In Nehemiah chapter two, we find that he risked his life to petition the king to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And we find here in verses one and on, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king, and I had never been sat in his presence before. Therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you're not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tomb lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. This took an amazing amount of faith on behalf of Nehemiah. If you know the history of those who were keepers or bearers of the cup to the king, there were a couple of things we should know. One, they were there to identify if there was any poison in the cup. Therefore, there was not a lot of job security in this particular type of career unless you were very good at sifting out poison in a cup of wine. Secondly, they usually became counselors to the king, consiglieris in the Italian terminology. And in counseling the king, they became close to the king. And third, the Medo-Persian kings and the kings of this time had a very strict rule. You're never looking dissatisfied when you're there. And history serves us well in telling us that some cupbearers were beheaded right there. If you go to Red Fort in India, outside of New Delhi, you can see how the kings sit, the Medo-Persians, and you can see exactly where they execute. It's just a fascinating trip if you ever, ever, ever go. So Nehemiah risked his life to petition the king to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. It was a perfect time. The queen was sitting right by the king. He makes his petition, and the king actually gives him the scepter and lets him speak, and God opens the door for him to go to Jerusalem to rebuild. Now, my question is to you, are you a big godder? Robert Dick Wilson was professor of Hebrew at Princeton Theological Seminary back in the 20s. He also, I should say of the 1900s, he also was one of the most brilliant men of his time. One of his graduates was the famous pastor, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, who later went on to pastor the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia and became, if you will, somewhat legendary in American history. Twelve years after graduation, Barnhouse went back the first time to Princeton to preach in the old Miller Chapel there on campus. At that time, his former professor, Dr. Wilson, sat right in the front row to hear him. A very intimidating situation for Barnhouse since Dr. Wilson was so well-established in the world at that time. 
But there he was, and Dr. Barnhouse preached his heart out as he did every opportunity he received. Afterward, Professor Wilson comes up to him, and he extends his hand, and he says to Barnhouse, if you come back again, I will not come to hear you preach. I only come once. Barnhouse's heart sank to his feet. But then, Dr. Wilson said, I'm glad that you are a big godder. When my boys come back, I come to see if they're big godders or little godders, and then I know what their ministry will be. Barnhouse asked him to explain what he meant. Dr. Wilson said, well, some men have little gods, and they're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of inspiration. He can't take, of the tr take care of the transmission of the scriptures. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little god. I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great god. He speaks, it is done. He commands and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. You, Donald, have a great God and he will bless your ministry. And he paused, smiled and said, God bless you and he walked away. Do you live in such a way that your view of God is so small and so insignificant that you're always distressed, freaking out, faithless, You'd like to believe in him, but he just won't come through? Or is your view of God the true and biblical one? He's a great, big, unlimited, all-powerful, almighty God in your eyes. Nehemiah was a big godder, and so should you be. When Edward Kimball asked D.L. Moody and challenged him, and he said, Moody, there in the shoe store as we understand it, the world is yet to see what God can do with a man who is entirely sold out to him. D.L. Moody there in Chicago responded to him, by God's grace, I will be that man. And interestingly enough, D.L. Moody lived through that particular awakening and looks back on it that we saw at this video when we came up. Are you a big godder or a, new, or a little godder? The New Testament application here is Mark 11:22. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them and you will have them. Let me give you a hint there theologically. If your life is in pursuit of the goal of the Great Commission in Matthew 28 that we read, then God will go the way with you. As you step out in faith, the momentum will be there. And he'll take care of the rest of the situations. You need that bill to be paid. You need that career move. You're wondering about this next step. Let God do the work in your life. Like God, Gordon Heffern, who was the former CEO uh, emeritus of Key Bank, told me as I was in his, his, his office there in Cleveland, and he said, Gary, God has given me divine nudges every step of the way till I got here. God can do the work. Third, Nehemiah was a courageous leader. Now, Nehemiah too says, I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be approach, a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God which had been good upon me and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So the people said, let us rise up and build. These were the elders. And they set their hands to do this good work 
because the scripture says that the people had a mind to build. They completed the actual work in 52 days, as Pastor Ben has told us. What many people don't know, but I might know because I work with engineering firms in part as a consultant, is that 52 days to do this work today would be impossible because nobody would undertake and do it with all of the people that they would need to do, and that's with contemporary equipment. So Nehemiah was a kind of leader that was not only courageous, but he was able to empower and align his people to work, and he had them build in front of their houses so that they had a very vested interest in that area of the wall. You can read a lot of that in Nehemiah 3. But why were they ultimately successful? It's because Nehemiah had a focused, God-centered goal, and it was powered by God. As I talked to you about the Great Commission, being in alignment with God. And this is something that we see the world do with seeming ease. From 1923 to 1955, Robert Woodruff was the president of Coca-Cola Corporation. During that time and after, right after World War II, he led the company to adopt his goal succinctly stated as, during my lifetime, I want every person in the world to taste Coca-Cola. Now, he pretty much achieved his goal. And the question is, if one man can dream about the world tasting Coke, why is it that we can't dream about the world tasting Christ? Now, if you're a smart person and you've done a lot of research, you'll know that the old Coca-Cola included cocaine in it. And I believe that was prior to Woodruff's time. And you would say, well, of course he was successful, had coke in it. Let me tell you something. The products that the world have don't pale or, they, or compare to the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. But the reason we don't see the work happening may be linked directly to how we relate with God and how we come together. We may be too busy, in fact, to be engaged as Robert Woodruff was with his team to go forward. And in a moment, I'm going to share with you just how you can do that very thing. So Nehemiah was a courageous leader, and we need to be that at this time. He went through a number of things, and the question that we have to ask ourselves, what are your goals for God? Jesus said, What is it worth if a man gain the entire world and yet lose his own soul? He also said, if you don't pick up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. If you take your life on a spectrum of percentage, what is your commitment to the Lord? I ask leaders all of the time, how committed are you to your goals? And these are CEOs, people that run their companies, and I'll have 15 of them in a room, and I'll say, how many of you know more about your hobby than you do about this corporation? And after about two minutes of a very awkward silence, their hands will start to go up. I know more about hunting. I know about more about cars. I know more about all of those things than their goals. And I believe to some degree we're making that same error in the church. For the church at large appears to be unfocused, misguided, and unproductive. Here's the stats. 90 plus percent of church growth today in the States is transfer growth. And so that tells you a tremendous amount. If we can be focused for the Lord, he can do the rest of the work. So I want to encourage you, set your goals. Even if they're small, in your mind, they're big for God. Fourth, Nehemiah was a radical reformer, 2X. We read 
a number of verses, of course, that Ben really has touched upon, so I'm going to be very, and he did a great job of it. I'm going to be very short on it and say he brought, first of all, the people back to the word of God. They read from the book. He gave them the sense. This happens to be the model for the American church today, pulpit, reading, give the sense of the word distinctly from the pulpit. Secondly, he had them sign a covenant to align themselves with the word of God. Thirdly, they recovered the tithes and recommissioned the Levites because, in fact, they had let that lapse. And so in chapters 8 and 9, it's Nehemiah's first visit. In chapters 13, most Bible scholars are agreed that it was approximately 12 years between the time that he went back to be the cupbearer of the king after he finished the wall and returned again. And when he returned again, things had just fallen apart at a great level. And so he recovered the tithes. He recommissioned the Levites. He restored holiness on the Sabbath day because, of course, they were doing their business on the Sabbath. They weren't taking a day to really seek the Lord according to the law. And, of course, he rejected the mixed marriages because they had, been, they had gone so far off the rails, he literally had to re-reform them again. And we know what happened 400 plus years later when Jesus walks into Jerusalem and he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, would you, that I would, that you would have gathered under my wings as, a, as a chicks do under the hands, but behold, you would not. And behold, your house is left to you desolate. But the objective was achieved. Nehemiah's work, opened the door and paved the way for Israel to continue on after captivity to preserve the most important time period in all of human history, and that is for the birth of Jesus Christ. And then from there, the kingdom of God was unleashed by God himself. Now, point. Nehemiah reformed the Israelites two two times, as we've mentioned. And there are arguably three types of reforms as we bring this into the New Testament and begin to close out what we're talking about now. The first reform is national reform. The second uh, is religious reform, and the third is self-reform. With national reform, without giving you any funny stories, I will tell you that I went after national reform hard as an early Christian, first as a believer, and failed all the way to the White House in D.C. and the other White House in Hollywood. I learned the hard way that the Great Commission is about conversion of the souls, making disciples. But if God has given you a position in government or a call, then exercise it for him as he wills. Wilberforce did it in the abolition of slavery. We can exercise our voting rights in a small or large event sense. But make sure that you're called, because there are many who, as in the Old Testament with David, they run without a message to their own hurt, reflecting on the work of the messenger that came to David. Secondly, religious reform. If you've been around Christianity a bit, you're familiar with the reformers, John John Wycliffe in England, Catherine of Siena in Italy, John Huss in Bohemia, which is modern-day Prague. Great to take a tour through these places. Martin Luther of Germany. Jesus gives us a wonderful picture of this himself as a reformer in turning the tables of Jerusalem and Judaism. And if the church is going to do anything for Christ today, it probably should first reform itself before trying to reform the nation. So if God calls you to this role, exercise it again. But again, many have run without being called. Many go from church to church trying to reform them without seeing that they need to look inside first to reform themselves. In 20 years in the ministry, I can tell you that's true. 
Then there's self-reform. Here's where we all have a strong call. This is where God starts with us at conversion, the process of sanctification, living for Christ, cleaning up our own house before we try to clean up others. This is where I've learned to focus. Healthy self-analysis tells us how ungodly we are as individuals, how self-centered we can be. And we can go to Galatians 5 and we can see both the opportunity to walk in the spirit and then we can see the sins of the flesh. So it's important for us to first take the log out of our own eyes before we look at the speck in our brothers. Second, live a sermon before preaching a sermon. Third, exercise your spiritual gifts of giving, mercy, leadership, evangelism, teaching. Take the gifts that you've been given and every day attempt to reach out to somebody. Whether you're in your plane, whether you're at a store, whether you're at your house, whether you're at business, reaching out and be Jesus' hands to the world. Start with yourself. I know of a great illustration that was allegedly a tombstone in Westminster Abbey although it's been traced to other places, and I think it fits this perfectly. The above words are said to be written on this tombstone. When I was young and free, my imagination had no limits. I dreamed of changing the world. As I grew older and wiser, I discovered the world would not change, so I shortened my sights somewhat and decided to change only my country. But it too seemed immovable. As I grew into my twilight years and one last desperate attempt, I, sent, I settled for changing only my family, those closest to me, but alas, they would have none of it. And now as I lie on my deathbed, I suddenly realize if I had only changed myself first, by example, I would have changed my family. From their inspiration and encouragement, I would then have been able to better my country. And who knows, I may have even changed the world. I can't think of anything better than that particular illustration to talk about how we're world, world changers. So how do we become world changers? What's, what, what is it that we should do? Well, one goal we should be, have would be sort of like Robert Woodruff, right? We should have focused goals. But more importantly, we should start with prayer, individually and corporately, just like that video we talked about and saw today individually so that we can reform ourselves, and corporately so that we can follow God's lead, whatever it may be. There's a wonderful and final illustration I'll close with that I think is very moving in this sense. In 1940, Professor Orr, O-R-R, of Wheaton University led a group of theology students to England where they visited sites of great revivals. One location was the Epworth Rectory, the part-time home of John Wesley, a famous reformer who together with George Whitfield led world-changing spiritual work in the 1700s, in fact, the great awakening of that period. As a man of prayer, Wesley interceded for revival to sweep through England and to spread to America as well. And the great awakenings were in part products of their work, uh, their, let's say, efforts. They went into the kitchen of the Epworth uh, hall, and Professor Orr showed the students where John Wesley would have eaten his lunch and his dinners. He took him into the study where Wesley would have studied. They were enamored with the old books that Wesley had. In fact, some of them had the notes from Wesley in them. They would be able to touch the spines of the books, and they were just, if you will, in awe of, of the work 
the theology students were enjoying the richness of the history. And then Professor Orr walked the students to the second floor where the most intimate place of Wesley would be, and it was his bedroom. And as they walked there, alongside the bed, there were two divots in the floor. Those two divots in the floor was the, were the places where Wesley had spent his time in prayer every single day crying out for revival. It was easy to see those impressions upon the floor and it really moved the students tremendously. So the student, students stood in there for a moment and after a few minutes they left that room and went downstairs. As the tour concluded, the students loaded the bus. After counting them, Dr. Orn noticed one was missing. He went into the home and he started at the bottom floor going through the rooms and he couldn't find the student. Went to the second floor until finally got to Wesley's bedroom and there on his knees was a student praying and he had his knees exactly placed in those divots, in those worn impressions where John Wesley had fervently prayed for revival. And he could hear the student repeatedly pleading, do it again, Lord, do it again and do it again with me. Dr. Orr walked over to the student, put his hand on his shoulder, and said, son, we've got to go now. And arising from his feet, Billy Graham joined Dr. Orr in that bus. And God did it again. And God can do it through you. Let us ask God, to do that today. Jesus said, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. We don't know exactly how God will work, but we know he will work. His ways are not our ways. It's not by power or by might. We don't have the power to do great things, but God has the power to do great things if we'll humble ourselves before him. Let's pray, Lord, do it again with me. Start with ourselves and let God take us to the ends of the earth. And he can do it because he's done it with me. And he took me right off the street, right off the business floor around the world. And I had no idea what I was asking for. He can do it with you. If he can do it with me, he can do it with anybody. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and we pray that this church would be, let's say, aligned to pray and to seek you in corporate prayer. We pray, Lord, that even now, as we're together, we would be praying and asking God, you, Lord, to work in our lives tremendously. We praise you, Lord. We thank you for your glory, for your your work in our lives, for forgiving us for our sins. And we pray your Holy Spirit would descend upon us even now as we're singing, as we begin to worship you, and that we would have our focus on you alone. And then from here, Lord, perhaps we use our prayer ministry and we come together and focus on prayer and what you would want to do here because you are willing to do it again. And then I pray for those individuals here, Lord, who are suffering, going through things, have questions, are wanting to see you work, and yet perhaps there's a gap between what they see happening now and your kingdom work. And I pray that you would answer their prayers by the power of your Holy Spirit. Holy God, we praise you for what you're going to do 
that the gifts of the Spirit would be a part of your work and that you would glorify your name and that you would do above and beyond what we can ask or think in the name of Jesus Christ. And just as this music begins, I'm going to ask you if in some way the Word of God has touched your life today, uh, that you really have a prayer need or really want to connect with God in the way that we've seen in video and through the Word of God, I'd like you to raise your hand where you're seated right now and just ask God to do that work. And we can pray for you. Don't be shy. Perhaps God has got something for you in this way. Just raise your hand if you will. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Don't be afraid. We're not going to call you up. God bless you. Lord, we pray right now that you would glorify your name and magnify it by the power of your Holy Spirit. Work out every detail. And today, Lord, we humble ourselves before you. Speak to our hearts, Lord, and may your will be accomplished and your work be done. We have a word that somebody wants, that God wants to heal a hand injury today too here. And perhaps that's you. If that's you, you can also raise your hand. Okay, praise the Lord. If you will, why don't you all stand? Now I know I'm a bit loud and it can be a bit overbearing, but I tried to sort of modulate my voice. I mean, the idea is that God is here with us rather than somebody speaking to you. I think we need to just put down all of the barriers and let God work in such amazing ways that he can do. The histories that we talked about today, including the scriptural histories, are for you. And they're for me. And they're for our children. And I want to tell you right now that God's word to you is that he will do great things through you. Greater things than these can he do. And so if you raised your hand today or you didn't and we still prayed for you today, God is going to do that work by the power of his Holy Spirit. Let's praise today and 